and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. It's good to be with all of you today. Many of you know that all summer long we're telling some of the great stories of the Bible, the greatest hits of the Bible, the stories, uh, some of them, many of them, that draw us in when we're kids because they're so interesting, like there's so much action, right? We read a couple weeks ago uh, Joseph wrestling all night long with a stranger. We're going to read about Jesus walking on the surface of the water later in the summer. But these stories uh, have layers, and when we come back to them as adults, they, they unfold and open up deeper riches, deeper resources that nourish us in our lives. So today we're making our last stop in the book of Genesis. We're going to learn about Joseph and his family. So much of the book of Genesis is about what happens, the drama that happens within individual families. How will God's favor that was first given to Abraham be passed on down the generations uh, in spite of or because of things like sibling rivalries and familial betrayals? And certainly uh, there is a lot of courage and resourcefulness and love and faith in these stories in Genesis. Joseph's story is the longest story in Genesis. It is 14 chapters long. It is an almost seamless story. There's a decent chance that you you read it the first time or that you really heard it the first time, uh, not through the Bible, but the same way that I did, through a community theater production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Go watch it tonight if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's a great musical. And it should tell you something that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice thought a Bible story was exciting enough to be turned into a Broadway musical. There's juicy stuff in this story. And so I'm going to tell you the story this morning. I'm not going to sing it to you. I'm going to tell it to you. Uh, but I want you to hear it. Here's the story of Joseph and his family. This is the best story ever. It begins with Joseph. Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob, of his father Jacob. It is good to be a child like Joseph, loved as much as he is. Parents are not supposed to have favorite children, but don't tell that the, the matriarchs and the patriarchs in Genesis. They all have favorites. Joseph was Jacob's favorite, the son of his beloved wife, Rachel. Jacob loved Joseph more than the other kids. And what was not to love, right? Joseph was whip smart. He was charming. He was handsome. This guy was a looker. As he grew up, he would turn the heads of ladies and men alike. Joseph even received from his father Jacob a special gift, a garment. We don't know exactly in the Hebrew what kind of garment it was. We just know it was beautiful. It was regal, maybe a little bit feminine. And Joseph wore that thing everywhere that he went. Now, I should mention there was at least one thing that was unlovable about Joseph. Joseph was either ignorant or arrogant or both. When all of his brothers were out working underneath the sun, toiling out in the sun, Joseph would, would, would sit around with his dreams. He would dream about his own specialness, dream about his own greatness. He dreamt that his father and his brothers would one day bow down and serve him. Yeah, maybe you have had delusions of grandeur along the way. That's 
not so bad, right? But when you then go and tell your brothers those same dreams, when you tell it to their faces, when you know they already hate you because your father gives you special preferential treatment, you are begging for trouble. And Joseph was begging for trouble. And trouble found him one day when he went with his brothers out to the fields and their anger burned hot like wildfire and they decided to trick him and Joseph fell into a well from which he could not get himself out and the brothers were going to leave him there to die. And then at the last minute they had pangs of regret and, and, and at that moment they saw a line of merchants in a caravan coming by, and so they they got Joseph out of the well and they sold him to the merchants. They sold their own brother into slavery and they, they went home and they told their father, Jacob, that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And that news broke Jacob. But of course... Of course, Joseph didn't die. He he was sold into slavery in Egypt. Yes, big, bad Egypt, the global superpower. And so there, sitting in the hellhole of an Egyptian prison, Joseph uh, somehow found a way to survive, and not just survive, even to make a name for himself. Remember, Joseph is a dreamer. And and so as he's sitting there in prison, he starts uh, uh, interpreting others' dreams. He's fluent in the world of the subconscious. So he starts telling other people what their dreams mean, and they believe him. It turns out that just at that very moment, the Pharaoh is having dreams of his own. Nightmares, really. Nightmares about, about famine and suffering coming to his people. And so Joseph, as this notorious, renowned interpreter of dreams, is brought to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh shares his dreams, and Joseph tells him what they mean, and he tells Pharaoh what to do. He steers the Pharaoh toward a prudent course of action, storing up food, preparing for the famine ahead. And indeed, the famine comes just like Joseph said it would. And when it does, Joseph is promoted. He He rises to become the right-hand man of the most powerful man in the world. The famine devastates the entire region. Starvation. Everyone comes to Egypt begging for food. And guess who comes to Egypt begging for food? Yes, Joseph's own brothers. (laughs) Now, they don't recognize him, of course, sitting there in his finery in Pharaoh's court. Joseph should have been long dead, so they wouldn't have recognized him there. And this is Joseph's chance for sweet revenge against these half-brothers who left him there to die. Joseph will hide a piece of silver in the bag of one of his brothers before they're about to leave. And then when that brother is caught, all of the brothers are brought back in to beg for their lives. They're they're, they're, they're there to beg Joseph for mercy. (laughs) What a sweet What a sweet turn of events for Joseph. I mean, Joseph can do anything he wants to them now. And so he approaches them. Joseph comes toward his brothers, and as he does, he feels the tears welling up in his eyes. Tears start streaming down his cheeks as he looks at his brothers. He says, it's me. It's me, Joseph, your brother. I'm alive and I forgive you. Don't feel badly for what you did to me. It wasn't you who put me here. It was God who put me here to preserve life. What you intended for harm, God intended 
for good. That's what Joseph says to his brothers. And so they are reconciled to one another. Joseph is reconciled to his family and his brothers' families survive the famine and Egypt survives the famine. And and Joseph, Joseph's silly little adolescent dreams about greatness, they all come true. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. This is the best story ever. Thanks be to God. Well, Lord have mercy on this dysfunctional family, right? It is a hot mess of a family. Sibling rivalries, up and down, inheritance issues all around, bad parenting, parents passing down their worst attributes to their children, children unconsciously living into the messed up roles of previous generations and preserving these deeply unhealthy family systems. There are even in this family, if you look and read the story closely enough, even conflicts over gender expression. Joseph, after all, is a flamboyant, slightly feminine dresser, and his lifestyle tests his family's sense of what it is to be a son and what it is to be a man. All of this conflict is right there in the text. The family of Joseph is a hot mess, and and surely... In his story, we see something of our own family story. Bad parenting, we've received it, and we've done it. Sibling rivalries, jealousy among siblings, anger, bitterness that precipitates a spiral of vindictive decisions over the course of a lifetime between siblings that extends even to our parents' deathbed. Yes, that's our story too. This messed up family is a lot like our own. This is our story. But the question is, how is this God's story, right? How how is this God's story? Where is God's good and gracious hand in Joseph's family story? And for that matter, where is it in your family story or where is it in mine? Now, if you go looking in the text For God, you have to listen and read really hard. God is almost entirely hidden in this whole Joseph story in all these 14 chapters, which is strange, right? For one, this is the Bible, and so we kind of expect to hear and see God mentioned on every page, if not in every story. It's also strange because up till now, God has been the driving force in the lives of Joseph's father, Jacob, and Joseph's grandfather, Isaac, and Joseph's great grandfather Abraham. Abraham wouldn't do anything without God, and yet the story of Joseph hardly mentions God. So where is God? Where and why is God hiding? Well, some people who have spent a lot of time with the story and studied it, some scholars think that maybe, just maybe, this story got written down a little bit later than some of the other stories in Genesis. Maybe it got written down at a uh, more cosmopolitan time when the idea that the God of the universe would, would play favorites among siblings and get down into the mess of individual families, maybe that idea seemed to the writers of the story trivial or embarrassing. So they didn't quite mention it in the same way that earlier 
writers had. Why would God take an interest in one family after all, especially one as undignified and petty as Joseph's family? Doesn't God have better things to worry about? And sure enough, right, in the story, the lens shifts. It broadens from one family to involve a whole geopolitical drama, right? Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt. Joseph, who stands to inherit the blessings of God Almighty, becomes a foreign slave in the great and unjust Egyptian economic and military machine. And in that machine, the bodies of foreign slaves like Joseph get ground up and thrown into the fire as fuel for the empire. That is what should happen to Joseph, but it does not. Joseph is not ground up. He survives in prison. He not only survives, he thrives on his wit and his cunning and his good looks for sure and on his capacity for flattery and yes, even because of his belief in the power of dreams. Joseph then finds himself thrown into the middle of a global crisis, a climate crisis. Imagine imagine that. There is drought and famine, suffering and starvation. The world's greatest superpower is teetering on the edge of collapse unless it figures out a way to respond. And then up comes Joseph. It is Joseph's voice and Joseph's wisdom that steers the empire toward a prudent course of action. The Egyptians will end up saving their grain during the fruitful years. And that decision saves hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of human lives. And not just Egyptian lives, but the lives of climate refugees, including God's chosen people, Joseph's own brothers and sisters. Some of us, some of us find it easier to see God at work in the big picture, in matters of political and economic importance. We, we, we think it's easier to see God at work there than in the intimate spaces of our family life. But in this Joseph story, as is true, I think, in our own lives, both the political and the personal spaces are morally and theologically fraught. There aren't any perfect actors in this story, and there are certainly not any pure motives. Sure, it's true that that, that Joseph's gifts, when he uses them, they become an example of the weak blessing the strong. And, And Joseph's wisdom helps preserve the underdog Israelites and tips the empire toward compassion. But Joseph's Actions in this story also helped Egypt to survive. Egypt will continue to be Egypt, to oppress and torture and kill the innocent until God has to intervene generations later through the hands and the voice and the actions of Moses. In this story, the will and the hand of God is no clearer in the political realm than it is in Joseph's Joseph's uh, relationship, his contested relationship with his brothers, or than it is in Jacob's dubious parenting, right? So we're left with the question, is God in this story at all? Now at the end, Joseph, Joseph himself looks back at his own life, and he chooses to see 
the gracious hand of God at work in the whole thing. Even, even in the betrayal of his brothers and in his own suffering, and then in his rise to influence, in his ability to overcome the obstacles that were set in his path, in the fate that brings his family back to him, in his ability to forgive and bless his kin, in all of that, Joseph chooses to see the hand of God at work. He sums it up in this, in this beautiful and poignant line at the end of Genesis 50 by saying, what you, my brothers, intended for harm, God intended it for good. No matter what you intended, God took it and turned it into something good. We call this affirmation, belief in the providence of God. It's that sense that God is working to bless the world, to bless you and me, to bless all of us both in the intimate, mysterious spaces of familial relationships and in the grand, unscrutable decisions that move geopolitics. A belief in God's providence says that God's goodness is there, even and especially when you and I can't see it with our eyes, when we don't know exactly how those blessings will come to pass. We simply trust that God is good. And that because God is good, God's goodness will prevail in the end. Joseph's faith in God's providence is awesome and it is inspiring. His is a powerful faith. And it very well might have been what kept Joseph alive through his trials. So I just need to confess that I also have a deep suspicion about all declarations of God's providence. Sometimes I wonder if, if providence glosses over the bad things that happen to people along the way that didn't have to happen. Providence can be invoked to cover a multitude of sins that should never be covered. I think at its worst Providence feels lazy, like a kind of cheap grace or a baptizing of history written by the victors. The writer Ta-Nehisi Coates is one of the notable voices in our nation's great struggle over race. And Coates has cautioned Americans about our too easy willingness to believe in providence. I want to read to you a passage from his memoir, Between the World and Me, which is written as a letter from Coates to his own son. We, the readers, get to overhear. He says, You, my son, must resist the urge toward the comforting narrative of divine law toward fairy tales that imply some irrepressible justice. The enslaved were not bricks in your road, and their lives were not chapters in your redemptive history. They were people turned to fuel for the American machine. Enslavement was not destined to end, and it is wrong to claim our present circumstance as the redemption for the lives of people who never asked for the posthumous, untouchable glory of dying for their children. 
perhaps, Coates says, struggle is all we have because the God of history is an atheist and nothing about this world is meant to be. So you, my son, must wake up every morning knowing that no promise is unbreakable, least of all the promise of waking up at all. This is not despair. These are the preferences of the universe itself, verbs over nouns, actions over states, struggle over hope. The universe, Coates says, is not on some inexorable path toward improvement. So we have to be cautious whenever we claim that God's got the whole world in his hands or all things work together for good for those who love God because the evidence in front of our eyes often suggests the opposite. I find this suspicion of providence is not cynical. On the contrary, I think it's motivated by a profound Love for human bodies. Coates reminds us of another deeply held biblical truth, that there is a unique and irreplaceable quality embedded in every single human life. We call it the image of God, the spark of life. Every time the wheels of injustice in our world grind up the body of a beloved child of God, an image bearer of God, it challenges us to ask, is God in control or was it my duty to stand up and stop that injustice in the name of God? Joseph's story in Genesis is written in such a way that we never know exactly how and where God is at work. Yes, there is a clear sense, the implication that God is there. There's even a hint that God's providence is at work in the story. But the story is written in such a way that God's providence is not didactic. It's not overbearing. It never overshadows our own responsibility to love our family, to love our neighbor, and to love ourselves in every circumstance of life. That love, Joseph's story affirms, is every bit as important in the intimate spaces between family members and in geopolitical decisions of global consequence. The same God, this story affirms, that demands justice in the public sphere also expects us to break bread with our siblings and our neighbors at one table. It is very possible to read the Joseph story and ask, where is God? It's also possible to get to the end of this story and ask the inverse question, where is God not? Is God in the long arc of history bending it towards righteousness? Yes. Is God in the intimate spaces, in our closest relationships between our family members, 
between parents and children, between siblings? Is God in the face of every person in this world? Yes. Is God even in the most hidden of spaces? In our minds, in our hearts, in the world of our dreams? Yes, yes, and yes. This is the story of Joseph and his brothers. This is the story of God's providence and of our responsibility to love and serve each other. This is the best story ever. Let the people say, Amen.